footballers' lives. Life After Football is brought to you by the Phoenix Sport and Media Group. Presented and produced by Richard Lenton. Hello everyone and thank you for joining us on episode 5 of this second series of Footballers Lives. Remember there's loads of great interviews to check out from season 1, including the likes of Andy Cole, Danny Murphy, Brian Dean and Emmanuel Petit. This second series is focusing much more on footballers transitioning away from the game when the retirement Grim Reaper looms large. I've talked to some really interesting players, not least Michael Brands last week, who's got his life very much back on track after serving time in prison after his once promising career came to an early end. And today's guest probably has more strings to his bow than anyone I've spoken to so far. Shaka Hislop not only transitioned from Premier League footballer to successful media personality out in the States, but he also has a degree in mechanical engineering. He spent several months working at NASA of all places. Yes, that's NASA. And he's also heavily involved in the show races and the red card movement. So however you're listening to this podcast, whether you're in the car, you're in bed, you're chopping up vegetables, whatever it may be, I'm sure you'll enjoy footballers' lives, life after football, with the former Newcastle and West Ham goalkeeper, Shaka Hislop. Shaka, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Now, I didn't realise until I started researching you that you were actually born in Hyde Park and you moved to Trinidad at a really young age. And I read about the circumstances leading up to that move and what happened to your father, George, 50-odd years ago when he was wrongly mm. arrested in London. Can you explain what happened? Because it's an incredible story. Yeah, so my dad was a part of the Windrush generation coming up from Trinidad and Tobago as, as a young man in the, um, in, in the early 60s. Um, uh, he then went on to become a, a teacher at Loughborough University. During, during this time, him, him and a, a good friend of his, Desmond Allen, uh, as, as it happens, Desmond was, was already in law school, um, were coming home late one night. They, they were at a friend's place watching something on television uh, and then walking to the to, you know, tube station just to catch the last, the last train back home. Um, where two white police officers um, pulled them over, started to question them, uh, and then took them into a, a parking lot and, and started breaking car windows uh, and arrested both of them for, for attempted auto theft. Um, they, they, you know, it, it was clearly just meant to, to, to scare and to, to intimidate, as, as was pretty common um, at, at the time. Um, pretty common between the Metropolitan Police and, and, and the Black community at the, at the time. Um, but Desmond was, uh, was well, my Uncle Desmond was speaking to one of his, his law professors, whose name I can't recall, uh, but he had been doing work with the um, Commission for, for Racial Equality. Uh, and through that connection, they sued the Metropolitan Police um, and won. Uh, it was the first time anybody had, had dared challenge Metropolitan Police in, in, in this regard. Uh, certainly, the first time two black men had had, had dared do it, and and they won. Um, I, I remember my dad speaking about it, and and um, they thought they presented a pretty pretty strong case, but it was taking the jury a, a very long time in, in in their deliberations, and that that kind of scared the lawyer. Um, but then it, it came back. Um, they had, you know, they they got got justice. They they won the case on all counts. It was then a, they were then awarded a, what was a, a British record settlement of, of eight thousand um, pounds, 
and in speaking in the in the legal team speaking to, to some of the jurors after after the fact uh, and asking why it took the jury so long because that that had them concerned you know it, it, a, a few members of of of, uh, of the jury wanted to go even higher um, they were they were that disgusted by by the behavior of the police and the attempted cover up uh, they wanted to go uh, a whole lot higher and then, as i say keep in mind uh, 8,000 pounds in, in, in the early 60s, uh, as, as I mentioned before, was a, was a British record settlement. So it, it, could, have been, it could have been so much more. Um, but with, with that, with my dad's share of, of, of the settlement, his 4,000 pounds, he was able to go back to Trinidad and Tobago for, for the first time in, uh, since he left, so, so some years before. Um, uh, and during that six weeks, he, during that six weeks break, when he, just went home to, to see his mom and, and family who he had not seen since, since he had left. He met and proposed to my mother during, during that six weeks. And my mom moved up um, a, a few weeks after, after he came back up to, to England. He, he took what was left of, of, uh, of the settlement and enrolled in law school. Um, graduated graduated in, in, uh, from, in law just after. Uh, I'm, um, I'm the eldest of three boys, myself and, and uh, my second brother, um, Kona were both born in England um, while my dad was finishing up law school. And once he finished, he, he, the whole family moved back, moved back to Trinidad. Um, and and that's, that, that's home for me. So, um, so that, that, that was his story and, and went on to become, went on to practice uh, law, not, not only in, in private practice, but he then went on to become a, a magistrate, a uh, magistrate in, in family court, and then a senior magistrate in, in Trinidad and Tobago. So very much becoming um, a, a part of, of uh, the judicial system that, that had wronged him um, those years before. Wow. Talk about turning a negative into a positive. And I'm just wondering when he told you that story and how big an impact you think it had on your life? It's a story that uh, I don't recall him telling me per se. Um, in that, it had always been a part of who he was. And certainly I remember, so... You know, as I mentioned, black people challenging the authorities and particularly Metropolitan Police Service at that time was was simply unheard of. It's not something you did. And the way they did it, the, the outcome at the end was kind of folklore within the black community in England, uh, which was, was made up a lot of, of um, Caribbean uh, expats coming, coming up to, to, to England to, to work, as, as I mentioned. So I'd always heard the story as people would come to him and, um, and, and want to hear it, you know, want to hear the story told um, firsthand because, as I say, it had become such a part of, of the black movement in, in, in the 60s that, you know, coincided with the Brixton riots and, and, um, and an uprising around, around the black power movement. Um, and here was a story that, that was integral to, to all of that. So I'd always heard him tell the story to, to, a number of, to a number of friends. The thing that struck me, though, is the impact that it had on him, even in the telling of it. And despite the outcome, he, he would always get emotional about it. And, and at times it was tough for him to, to tell or to, to, to complete the story because it had taken such a, a, a frighteningly emotional toll on him, um, as I say, despite, despite the outcome. So I'd never really asked him about it. And he and I never sat down and had that conversation uh, around it. Um, 
maybe till till much later in 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 my life. Uh, but I, I'd always known and, and and heard these stories, so I I knew the details. I knew the details of it. So maybe through almost a kind of osmosis process, it's yeah, it's um, had a big impact on you. And and do you yes. think and, and do you think maybe you know your father, who I know was a, a decent athlete as well, the fact that he was very much into education was that kind of reiterated to you how important education was yeah it, it was um you, you're right my, my dad um education played a big part in, in, in his life he lost his own father as, 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 a, as a young boy i think he was eight when when my grandfather died so um he was raised in a, in a pretty much a, a single parent um a household seeing that he had nine brothers and sisters and he was the youngest of nine so um, I, I, at least my grandmother had had that, uh, or he had that, that sibling support. Um, and education was always was always big for him, you know. And, and uh, as I mentioned, um, you know, he graduated high school, then went on to to to, to study and, and teach at, at university before before going on going on to um, to, to to do law school uh, mm. himself. Uh, and that that balancing act of, of academics and athletics was always a part of his life. He, he was. A pretty good cricketer represented Trans Tobago in, in cricket. Yeah, he also did field events. At one point, he was a Caribbean record holder for for high jump, which which I still I, I now proudly boast of uh, <laughs> on his behalf. And, and and this is a time before before the mats and, and and when you were jumping into a sand pit and before the Posbury flop. But um, he, he was a Caribbean record holder at, at high jump for, for for a spell. So. He, he he did achieve a lot athletically as well, and and but was always always able to to manage and and, and balance it too, and and that was that that was again part of part of um, his his own fabric that that he passed down passed down to to myself and my brothers. Um, seeing that, you know, I grew up in in, in Trinidad, um, and at, at the time there was there was no professional league in Trinidad. There was no there was no professional league in, in the U.S. Dwight York hadn't made the, the trip from from Trinidad and, and, and Tobago to, to Aston Villa till till the early nineties himself, um, and and pretty much he, when you, you you played football in in, in Trinidad, one of the options, or probably the only option you had to you at the time, was to pursue a, a university scholarship and, and try to get a job. Um, I, I, at the end of that, and, and, and use that, use the use the athletics to 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 pay your way through school, and and that's that's that was was pretty much the only option I, I thought I, I had at the time, and and I pursued it, recruited by by Howard University, um, and and was just kind of focused on graduating from from university and and seeing where where that would take me. So there wasn't a specific dream with your mechanical engineering degree. Or were you planning for something sort of towards the end of your studies? Well, it, it was to, to get a degree. You know, leaving Trinidad, um, it was to get a degree. At, at the time, I wasn't sure. I, I really didn't know what what I'd, what you know um, discipline I'd, I'd pursue, um, exactly what path I'd take. I just wanted to get uh, you know figure that I'd, I'd figure that out when once I got there. Um, once I did get there, um, I, I was strong in maths. Math, maths is my favorite subject in school, and and uh, always had very strong grades at that. And and the, the soccer coach just said, "Well, do engineering." I had a few friends who, who were doing engineering themselves, and um, so enrolled in engineering. And and 
after a couple of years, settled on, settled on mechanical. Um, and uh, that was it. And, and then was just kind of thinking, you know, as, as, as I was coming to, to the end of my, my, my time and getting ready to, to graduate, uh, sorry, a year before my graduation, I graduated in 92. Uh, I actually did a summer internship with NASA, NASA headquarters. And I remember speaking to my mentor there, a guy by the name of Greg Sweetek, um, about, you know, uh, about what options I had. You know, we were just chatting during lunch or something of the sort. And, um, you know, I, I had decent grades at, at college as well. And, and um, I, I figured I'd, I'd be offered scholarships to continue on in, in doing a master's degree. Uh, but I was telling them, you know, I also was playing football in college. I was going well. and you know, I was trying to figure out what, what to do. And, and he, his advice to me was, listen, engineering is here. You know, give football a shot. Um, you know, give it one shot. And if it doesn't work, at least, you know, you come back into engineering and, and you, you have that. that. You gave yourself a shot and it didn't work out. Um, and, and that's kind of, you know, what, what I decided to do. I wasn't quite sure how I was, was going to put that off. But um, during the course of that year, the, the stars kind of align. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Howard University is in Washington, D.C., which is, is just down from, from Maryland and, and, and Baltimore. And as it happened, so there was an indoor league in, in the U.S. Uh, and uh, I was called up to, to play for the, what they call the senior, senior bowl or senior cup, wherever it is. So, you know, those students who are graduating or about to graduate from college all playing a game together. So all the coaches from these indoor teams can, can come and have a look. Um, uh, and the game was in Baltimore. Uh, I mentioned that because it's probably the only place that I could afford to get to. You know, I could afford to, you know, as, as a student with, with not, not a whole lot in the bank, um, I could buy a ticket to, to Baltimore at least. If had it been anywhere else in the country, I'm not sure I, I would have gotten there. So made my way up to Baltimore, um, played in this game, um, did quite well. Got, actually got drafted by, by the Baltimore Blast. Um, whose, whose head coach at the time was, was Kenny Cooper Sr., former goalkeeper at, at Manchester United. I, I, I told him, I, I, you know, I'd prefer to, to go and play outdoor. I wasn't quite sure how I was going to make that happen, but I, I'd never played the indoor game before. Um, but, you know, he said, listen, we, we're going to recruit you and have the rights to you, which, you know, is a very American thing. Um, fine, you know, okay. Uh, and then, as, as it turned out, Baltimore Blast were touring England that very summer, the summer of 92, early in the summer of 92. Um, they were going to Birmingham, Birmingham to play Aston Villa. Two games, Dwight York had signed for Birmingham, Birmingham uh, Dwight York had signed for Aston Villa a couple, a couple, a couple of years before. Um, and uh, again, as, as it happened, the starting goalkeeper for the Blast got called into the Puerto Rico national team. So I was the only goalkeeper in, who, who, who travelled. Played both games, got man in match in both games. Um, and as it turned out, there was a Reading scout in the stands who, who recommended me to, to Mark McGee. And, uh, and, and, and Reading offered me a trial. And the rest of this is history. I mean, it's an incredible story, but one detail that you've kind of glossed over there, I'm going to pick you up upon just once. Because when, you, when I research you, there are certain moments where you just go, Really? And people listening will, will have just heard you kind of gloss over, well, I did this internship at NASA. Now, what exactly <laughs> were you doing at NASA? I, I read that you were manufacturing robots. Is that right? Well, no. My, my, um, my, my, my specialization at Howard in mechanical, so as I say, I did mechanical engineering and my specialization was, was, uh, was, was robotics. 
So that was kind of what, what I did and, and, uh, and the specialization in, in, in my degree. Uh, I'd signed up with a, a recruitment agency who just placed students at different, you know, at, at different big companies to get some internships. You know, again, I keep in mind as I'm telling this story today, you know, this is pre-internet and, you know, there, there wasn't there wasn't a lot of option in terms of you know getting your, your name or your resume uh, in, in front of people in, in that way so i signed up with this agency who did that uh you know sent my, my, my cv through to them what i was doing and uh, my grades etc and they came back to me and said uh, there's an opportunity at, at, at nasa um this summer um working with with the space station freedom uh project um are, are you interested yeah yeah i was interested um so you know uh typical fashion i kind of jump in you know jump in the deep end uh the, my 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 really bad joke that i tell tell to everybody about this is everything went over my head <laughs> for, forgive me richard for for, for my <laughs> for my <laughs> awful joke <laughs> uh, but it, it was uh, and, and as much as, and then listen, the, the thing is, uh, and in all honesty, a lot of the stuff that they, they were discussing is, is at the top of, of um, uh, at the top of the knowledge tree in terms of in terms of engineering. You're talking about some of the brightest engineers, not not just in the US, but but in the world, are all working there. But I'm sitting there in in, in this room, and and I'm um, though I may not be able to contribute, um, I, I'm able to to um, sharing the experience of, of these very intelligent people working on theoretic, theoretics, in, 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 in essence, about you know, how, how to put this space station to, together and then pulling all the pieces together. Uh, and that, for me, was, was an incredible experience. And, and in that, um, you know, a, a lot of times, you know, you're not quite sure how things will work out. But, you have to do your research, you have to do your testing, and you have to trust your gut, you know? And I, and I think that was my, my biggest takeaway, um, my biggest takeaway from, from that summer's experience, you know? Just being in the room and, and understanding how these big decisions are made and how these incredibly talented people um, work and collaborate. Yeah, what an, in, what an experience, yeah. And like you say, mm. you jumped in and, you know, you experienced it and, I think it's fair to say you jumped in with the Reading trial as well, because Mark McGee tells me that you paid your own way there. But the other thing he told me was that he was expecting Neil Hislop to come, <laughs> and he certainly was not expecting a six-foot-five black goalkeeper, because if you remember back to that time, the early 90s, you and David James came along at a very similar time. Mm -hmm. The only black goalkeeper I'd seen before then was a guy called Alex Williams at Manchester City. At City, correct. In the early, in the mm -hmm. early kind of 80s. So, did you have any goalkeeping heroes who were black? Were you aware of Alex, for instance? Uh, I, I was, yes, I, I was aware of Alex. So, my, my time in Trinidad, um, we had limited exposure to, to, to English football, and, and primarily through, through um, a, a show called Road to Wembley, which came on on Saturday mornings of this sort. And again, just to continue to put things in, in, in perspective, you know, we had one television station in, in Trinidad and Tobago um, during, growing up. And so you had to watch what was on, you know, this is pre-cable as, as, you know, per, per my, my, uh, my, my, my 
previously what I was saying previously. Um, so and, and you what you just had to watch what what they showed. If, if you know whatever games they they showed, you couldn't follow your favorite team. You know whatever came on, you just had to kind of follow that. Uh, but of course, this was the, the era of, of Liverpool and, and Ray Clements had, had become a, a hero of mine just because of, 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 of Liverpool's success and, um, you know, my, my association with, with successful goalkeepers at, at the time. Um, I also say that um, because it, it was kind of surreal. I call Linton England national team. Um, this would have been 98, 98, 99, um, 99. Uh, no, no, 98. 98. 98 um and Ray Clements was was the England goalkeeper coach so it was it was you know a, a surreal experience for me and um you know heartbreaking uh at, at his loss um uh earlier earlier this year just just a few weeks ago you know um so that that was my only real knowledge of, of goalkeepers growing up I did know David James uh certainly of David James playing at Watford um, David's, uh, my dad know, knows David's dad. Um, I'm, I think I'm right in saying David's father is, is um, no, my, my dad knows John Barnes's dad. Uh, and, and John Barnes, of course, with his association at, at, at Watford, um, had become very aware of, of, of David coming through, coming through the ranks. So, you know, I knew of David James. And then, you know, as, as, as Mark Riley points out, my first name is actually Neil. Uh, but I've always gone by my second. So, you know, I've got Neil Hislop on my passport. Um, I got, the, got offered this trial. And, yeah, I, I, um, I, I left the U.S. with, with two suitcases and a, $100 in my, in, in my, in my pocket. Um, I'm not quite sure what to expect, you know. Um, but I, I was, I, I remember we getting put up at, at Coombe Park, which is the, the Reading training ground. Um, Kevin Dillon was, was also staying there and he met me and um, showed me to, to a room there. Um, stayed at, at Coombe Park and trained with, National, trained with, with, with Reading for, for a couple of days before um, they put me in, in digs, bed and breakfast. The Russell Court Hotel, I think it was, right on, on Russell Street, right downtown Reading. And, and that, became, that became home for a couple of months while, while the trial continued. So, yeah, so it was, was quite an experience. Yeah, trying to adapt to the UK again after 20 years away. And I know your first game, I believe, was a 3-0 loss away to West Brom. So That's right. Ozzy Ardiles is West Brom, by the way. There you go. Uh, yeah. So you'd come all this way. You know, obviously you had something to fall back on, but you were dreaming of football. Did you think at that point, your first game as a professional footballer, you've let three in, were you thinking... Any doubts that you were out of your depth? Um, no, it, 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 it came a little unexpectedly, in all honesty. I'm, I'm not sure if, if, if Mark remembers this, but I, I certainly do. Um, you know, sure we, as I said, it, it, the, the trial lasted for a couple of months and I'd seen other trialists come and go. So at least that was encouraging. Though, you know, no one was really saying anything to me about, um, about a, a long-term deal. Um, and then Steve Francis, the starting goalkeeper, actually broke, broke his finger, but played a game or two, um, but was you know, clearly having issues with it. And then we travelled to West Brom. And in the, in the pre-game talk, Mark, at, at the hotel, before we leave the hotel, Mark names me in the, in the starting team, which I, was, I, did, I had no inkling of. And, and 
um, again, this was, this was an era of just two substitutes. And generally, there was not a goalkeeper on the bench. So, you know, I would, I'd become quite used to, you know, I'm, I'm still on trial, just showing up at games, sitting in the stand and, you know, traveling back home, just enjoying the experience, you know. And then all of a sudden, this is, you know, a few hours before the game, you know, 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock, whatever it is before a 3 o'clock kickoff. I got named in the starting lineup, and I have no idea, you know, I have no idea how to handle this information. And, all, you know, my head is, my head is spinning. So, um, by, by the time the game was over, um, you know, I, I don't think my head stopped spinning at, at that point. The only thing I remember is, um, you know, I, I knew of Adile through, through his time with Argentina, with Spurs, him going on to coach. And I remember telling Phil Parkinson, who um, was my roommate at Rosa Court Hotel, that I, I was a huge Ardiles fan. And he said, well, just take a program, you know, take a program over and get him to sign it, uh, which I did. So I got him to sign that. And then uh, that became a, a habit of mine. So I have, I have the match day programs from every single one, bow one of my, uh, of my professional game. So uh, that's a... a, a a little bit of memorabilia I've, I've, I've kept myself for myself over the years. Um, but yeah, I remember, I remember Adelaide's. I remember losing 3 0. But my only takeaway was that I got Adelaide's signature on the, on the match day program. So were you getting signatures on all of these programs? No, just the one. Only Adelaide's. Only, only my first one is signed. The others, I just kept them. I, I just remember keeping them more. And which is the one that you didn't get then? At home to Manchester, this is at Newcastle, at Newcastle, um, I think it was, I'm trying to remember, at home to Manchester City, um, I went through, I went through them, um, actually, I think when, when we were leaving England, so I left England in 2006, and I went through all of them in, in England, and I remember it was, it was Newcastle against City, and I can't remember if it was home or away, I think I have... I think I, I, I've since gotten the, the home program, um, but, um, you know, I, I, haven't, I haven't gone through, it's, it's some 500-odd programs. I haven't gone through them, I, I guess, since so. That's incredible. Uh, <laughs> I love the, the fact that you've kept these mementos and the memorabilia. So are you one for collecting shirts if you played in games where nope. you exchange shirts? Uh, I've kept the shirts from, from uh, Toronto Biggest Performance uh, Participation in the World Cup. Um, I have a couple other shirts, um, but no, I, I, I didn't make a habit of, of keeping shirts. Um, no, no, nothing else, nothing else that I, I kind of cherish in any same way. Just these match day programs. Yeah. Well, Reading certainly, um, certainly thought a lot of you. And Mark McGee has told me that he credits the arrival of yourself and Jimmy Quinn as propelling Reading to success and also kickstarting his managerial career and even after the inauspicious start of that West Brom game you were voted the third best player of the last millennium for Reading and the number one goalkeeper so you must have great memories of your time in Berkshire. I, I, I do and, and that comes down to two seasons as I tell people because I think my first season was a little bit of a disaster. Um, it, it didn't get much better than that, than that start against, against West Brom and I remember actually playing at Barnet, um, windy night, and honestly, it was cold. I'd just come over, and I was frozen solid at halftime. And um, 
I, I could see, I can safely see, and I've had many bad games in my career, but I can safely see that it was easily the worst game I played as a professional. And we won one nil. I kept a clean sheet, and I can safely see it, it is the worst game I've, I've, I've ever played. Um, uh, but you know, and, and I played. I think my first season, I played about twelve games, um, twelve or thirteen games, not not many more. And then, um, and then I remember coming back. I, I, I wasn't going. To, I, I, I had I had real second thoughts about returning after my first season. I, I wasn't enjoying it. It was tough. Uh, I found settling into England really hard. I had left uh, my loved ones back in back in DC. My girlfriend was back in DC. I can happily report she's she's now my wife, 25 years and counting. Um, you know, I had family there, my friends were there, I'd built a life there. Um, and I, I, I found I found time in in, in, in Berkshire Hart that, that first season. I remember telling telling my dad that um, when I came back, I came back to Trinidad in the early summer, summer of, of, of 93. Um, and my dad just said, listen, you signed a two-year contract. You've got to honor that. You know, the one thing you have to do is, is honor your commitment, you know. And, and this was one. If at the end of that second season, you, you still feel like, you know, you, it's, it's too tough and, and you don't want to continue and you want to, you know, um, pursue a, a, a different path and, and, and do that. But you don't do that. You don't leave, that, you don't leave a year on, on the table. So I went back, you know, kind of pretty much with the mindset that this is probably going to be my last year in professional football. Um, and then uh, very early on in preseason, uh, Mark and, and Colin called me in, into the office. Uh, they had received an, an, an offer from, uh, I think it was Huddersfield for, for, for Steve Francis. And that pretty much they didn't have any money to replace him. So I was, I was going to be the, the starting goalkeeper in, in, in the team. And, and um, that, there, there wasn't another goalkeeper on the books. Um, there, there, there was not another goalkeeper. So I was the only goalie on the books. And I played every game that season. Um, I remember getting injured uh, at one point, and because there was another goalkeeper, there wasn't another goalkeeper on the books. Um, Reading lining up John Burridge to, to to come down just in case. But he would become he'd become a goalkeeper and coach at, at Newcastle once I, I moved up there. And then um, later on that season. Um, so before the transfer window closed, because we were near the top of, of, of uh, the second division, what is now League One, and you know they didn't want to take that chance that they get injured after the transfer window closes, they signed Sam, Simon Shepherd, um, Simon Shepherd as, as cover for me. Um, but other than that, I was the only goalkeeper between start of the season in August and the close of the transfer window in March or, or whatever, whatever it was back, back then. But I played every game, and we we won promotion. We won we won promotion to uh, up to up to the um, up to uh, the championship. Was now uh, what was the first division back then? Um, and and they off, and Reading offered me a new contract, but um, Reading offered me a new contract, which I was only too happy to say. I was on I was on four hundred pounds a week my first contract, so. I uh, had this massive pay rise to 900 quid a week. I was, you know, now all of a sudden I was, I was, I was ready for the big times. <laughs> I'm a 900 quid a week. <laughs> what, what did you treat yourself to? An XR3i? <laughs> I, I bought myself a 
I bought myself a Vauxhall Cavalier, a second-hand Vauxhall Cavalier, a really, really pushy Vauxhall. And then, uh, and then soon after I bought that, till so now my third season, we playing in in uh, in well, championship in, in today's money. Uh, season starts well. A, a, a dealership offered me a sponsored car, a sponsored golf, a golf. Yeah, I think it was a golf. I can't remember now. Um, so I saw my I saw my Vauxhall. I don't need. No, I don't need. <laughs> I don't need a Vauxhall. I've got my sponsored car named on the side. Um, I actually saw that. So I'd, I'd actually proposed to my my then girlfriend in '93, and then sold my Vauxhall to to pay for pay for our wedding in '95. A slightly different game back then. Wasn't it? <laughs> wow. So the move to Newcastle obviously came about. So I'm assuming things went uh, a little bit better in terms of remuneration. But do you remember your first meeting with Kevin Keegan? I remember he called me. Um, so I, as, as, as I just mentioned, I got married in December of 95. So my wife and I were, were back home, uh, back in Trinidad and Tobago um, for that. And then went off on uh, honeymoon and so, and, you know, no cell phones, so you know it's hard to, to keep keep track of what's going on. Every so often, my, my, my agent Jonathan Barnett would call and uh, fill me in with where we are and, and how things were progressing. Um, and then when I came back to England, started pre-season with 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 Reading, and then got a call from from Kevin Keegan. Um, I, I thought I thought somebody's winding me up. I I, I honestly did. And, and that's how the call started. And, and I was just playing along and laughing and saying the most ridiculous thing uh, until, until, you know, he just stopped and was like, no, this is Kevin Keegan. This is, this is really going to happen. And I, I, I just froze. I, I wasn't quite sure what to do at that point. So I, I, I heard him out. So I finished the call kind of as, as respectfully and professionally as, as I possibly could. Um, and then just kind of sat there waiting for whoever it was was winding me up to, to call me back laughing on the other line and, and it, it didn't call my agent and then uh, you know after half hour nobody called me back laughing um called my agent and he's like yeah it's it's, it's really going to happen and from there it happened really quickly um they newcastle were, were playing up in scotland um i can't remember who now um a, a, a pre-season friendly uh they flew me up there um uh Freddie Shepherd, one of the one of the, the co-chairmen, uh met me or had his had his uh Rolls Royce meet me and my my, my new wife at, at the airport and that took us to the game where um you know I was introduced to the team in the in the dressing room and um and that was it. Came came together really quickly, really quickly. Wow. And then how do you prepare for that first training session? With a new team, when you've gone from no disrespect, Reading in the championship, mm. to a team that was about to challenge for the league title, yeah, that that was tough. Um, I, the, the only good thing is uh, that summer Newcastle had a lot of new signings as well. Uh, David James, uh, David James, David Janola, Les Ferdinand, Warren Barton, all all signed for all signed for for Newcastle that same summer. We were all staying in the same hotel, the Gosford Park Hotel, um, so at least we got to. Um, meet each other and interact in, in, in the hotel before before going to training. So, you know, um, then you, you get there early enough and, and, you know, you get introduced to the guys in the dressing room. And then Kevin Keegan insisted on, on, on the gates being open at, at training. So 
every Newcastle training session had some 5,000 people cramming in, especially especially at that time with all the new signings and, and all the excitement around the team. So that was, that was um, probably the, the toughest aspect of it. You know, you're training, uh, going through your paces, and there are people literally standing feet away from you, you know, and um, that, 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 was, that was tough getting used to, you know, mm-hmm. along with everything else, along with having to take the training ground with the likes of Peter Beardsley and Rob Lee and, and all these incredibly talented players. Yeah. Well, the scrutiny up there is incredible. I've spoken to Andy Cole and Gavin Peacock about this, and they, well, Andy Cole certainly tr- struggled with a golfish bowl mentality that there is there mm. on Club City. But that 95-96 season as a football fan was probably the most exhilarating that I've seen. And it, it kind of changed the game in many ways. And to be a part of that, I know you were injured sort of December to April, but to be a mm. part of that must have been amazing. It was. Um, you know, given the excitement, given everything that was happening pre-season around the, uh, around the new signings. And then the start we had. We had an incredible start. Uh, and then, uh, as you mentioned, I got injured playing away at the Stamford Bridge, tore a thigh muscle. Um, but we, we, and we kept playing well. And then all of a sudden, things just changed in the new year. As strong as we were at home, we just couldn't, couldn't get a win uh, for all our good football on the road, you know, and, and that became tough. Um, and in, in the end, it, it was telling. That, that's what cost us, you know, that and um, losing to Manchester United. Uh, at St James's Park, where I, I, as much as, as as Eric Cantona scored the goal and grabbed the headlines, um, I, I I think Peter Schmeichel that was the greatest goalkeeping display I had witnessed myself personally. I was I was on the bench for for that game, um, but that was the greatest performance I I had seen in my own two eyes of, of any goalkeeper anywhere, uh, and that was the difference. The difference between Newcastle winning the league that year and, and us finishing second was, was Peter Schmeichel. Yeah. Um, and and that, was, that was a, a very bitter pill to swallow, just given how long we'd been in, in, in the lead and, and given everything and the excitement that we all felt. And then the disappointment um, that we felt as, as professionals, that the city felt. Um, it, 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 it was tough. Um, looking back on it, um, I, I felt... It was almost a necessary step. You know, you, you look at football today and, and uh, you, you try to chart some of the histories of, of, of some of the more successful teams. Um, let, let's use Liverpool of, of today, for, for example. You know, Liverpool had a league title snatched away from them by a point a couple of seasons ago um, at the hands of City. They suffered a similar fate. Um, a, a few seasons before, before they won their first title. They had come uh, oh so close. Um, Liverpool lost in the Champions League final before you know, winning it the, the, the following year. That, that disappointment is, is kind of a part of, 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 uh, of, of building successful franchises, of building successful teams. Uh, and I felt that Newcastle didn't do that. You know, looking back on our times, following on from that in an effort to, to keep a pace with Manchester United who had just floated on the stock market and had that injection of capital. Newcastle did the same, but in, in, in doing so, um, they let go of, uh, you know, there were huge disagreements at, at, at the highest levels between the board and, and, and Kevin Keegan, which 
eventually meant Kevin Keegan uh, walking away. Uh, and, and I think um, for all that was built, the experience, albeit bitter experience that, that we, we, we know had and, and had become a part of, of who we are, we, we, we let that go. We, 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 we lost that moment. And, and we've not been able, as a club, Newcastle haven't been able to, to recover that since. Looking back, was there any way Kenny Dalglish could have maintained what Kevin had started? Or was everything stacked against him just because of what was going on behind the scenes? Uh, I, I think a lot was stacked against him because of, of, of what was going on behind the scenes. And, and it's always tough when, when one manager comes in, makes these signings, and as good as, as these players are, and as good a manager as, as Kenny is, it, 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 leaves, it, it leaves players a little disenfranchised when that manager who signed you um, is pushed out the door as unceremoniously as Kevin Keegan was. Mm. And, and that is, is always going to be a tough bat on for, for, Kevin Ke uh, for, for Kenny Dalglish to then pick up and run with. Um, you know, we, as much as we all had that respect for, for Kenny, both as a player and as a manager, for the things that, that he did in, in, in both, uh, in, in both those, 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 those aspects. It's, it's, it's always tough. I'm, I'm a firm believer in um, what happens in the boardroom has a direct effect on, on what's happening on the field. There, there's, there's not, you know, there, there's no, or certainly not as big a separation as people in the boardroom would like to think or people sitting in the, in the stands would, would like to believe. And given what was happening in, in, in the boardroom, I, it didn't surprise me at all that we just couldn't we just couldn't get it back together in the way that in the way that we want to or or we we, we should have all that being said we did finish second again in in mm. that 96 97 season but that was almost more down to to liverpool's own capitulation they should have won the league that year mm. 96 97 um but they capitulated at the end of that season which meant manchester united actually won we finished second and liverpool finished third uh, if memory serves me correctly, um, but they were uh, way out in front for a long time um, that 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 ninety six ninety seven season. Yeah, no, it was a fantastic era for football. Uh, so many times because I was at university at the time, and we were all congregating, cheering on Newcastle, and that one nil game against Manchester United, I'll never forget it. I've never seen mm. a more one sided game, but there you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just one more question on Newcastle, because I know you're a big fan of David Batty. And he, did you know he's gone completely off grid? He, he, is it true that he just wasn't a fan of football? Literally no one hears anything from him. I, I, you know, I, I can absolutely believe that. So back in the day, David Batty um, did not have a bank card. So the joke was, if... if Bats wanted to go to the bar to have a drink. If he wanted to go to the grocery to, to, to get the, you know, the week's shopping in, he would have to go line up in the bank to see a teller to get his money out. He, would not have, he didn't have a bank card to go and, and, and you know, slip it into an ATM and, and get, get cash out. He, he just didn't. So for you to tell me now that David Batty is totally off the grid, doesn't surprise me in, in the slightest. No, I need to find him. I need to find <laughs> him. Good luck.
Yeah, I think it's going to be a struggle, that one. But tell me about your time at West Ham, because uh, you were player of the season in your first season there. It must have been a, a great dressing room, a bit of fun with Neil Ruddock and Ian Wright and those guys. Yeah, that, that, was, that was an incredible dressing room to be, to be a part of. You know, um, uh, Ian and, and Reza, kind of, their personalities were, were the um, dominating personalities in that, in that dressing room. You playing Elvis before was our pre-game uh, pre music and, and um, it, it was an incredibly talented team that Harry Redknapp, and the one thing I always say about Harry, I don't think I've come across a better man-manager. Um, he got in talented footballers and, and allowed them to play and, and that's, that's what we did and we had a ball with it. Um, it, it was also, I, I think, my best season as, as a professional. Um, we, we finished fifth that season, still West Ham's uh, highest finish in, in, in the Premier League, uh, as is Newcastle's uh, two second place finishes. Um, and probably the team's highest finish, you, uh, you were involved there. Oh no, apart from the well, Premier League years. Yeah, they, they, Reading, Reading got, got promoted a, a few years later. And I, I also probably boast, I, I think I was rec um, Reading's record sale for knocking on 10 years at one and a half million pounds. Um, uh, even even with the money coming into the game, so at, at least I, I have that. I, I claim that. Um, so, but yeah, Reading did go on to, to eventually uh, play in the Premier League. But 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 yeah, it, um, so 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 yeah. So it it was it was it really was an incredible time um, at, at West Ham. That you know, I I, I loved every minute of it. I, I really did. Yeah. I was looking back on one of my favourite ever Premier League games the other day, February 2000. It finished West Ham 5, Bradford 4, the infamous game where Paolo Di Canio was sat by the dugout refusing to play after being denied a couple of penalties. And then I noticed in the team sheet that you'd gone off after three minutes with a broken leg. So not the best yeah. for you. No, it wasn't. And strange one to, to that. I, I was actually um, out for a while um, with... with a hamstring. I had a tight hamstring, so I think I'd missed uh, a game or two leading up. But I actually got called into the Trantabigo squad to play in the Gold Cup in, in 2000 and had my suitcases in the car. Right after that Bradford game, I was going to go straight to, straight to Heathrow to, to jump on a flight to, to meet up the Trantabigo national team. Um, I, I, I just felt I needed to play, you know, uh, just to, to, to show that I was fit before, before, before leaving. Um, so got it. Got you know. So started the game. Got a back pass early on. Um, I could see Dean Saunders coming, uh, but I, I knew I had enough time to to, to get my, my kick off. And, and so I decided to take a touch um, because I was nursing this sore hamstring. I didn't want to just you know first thing you know fresh into the game, go and kick this ball long. Took a touch. Um, got my kick off in time, and Dean just came across and, and caught my right ankle. Um, which it wasn't a foul, you know, he was just coming across. It was just one of those incidental contacts that you have in a game. But he caught my right ankle and it spun me. And my left studs somehow got caught in the two. And as I spun, my left leg just didn't move. And I, I heard I heard the snap in my left ankle. So... Um, and yeah, so four minutes on, um, four minutes into that game, I, I, I knew, I, I heard the crack. Um, I, I knew I had to come off and, and, and that was it. So, you know, I had to, you know, 
go cart it off to, to the treatment room and then hospital later that night and had to call the Trandabigo uh, manager and say, sorry, I'm, I'm not going to be there as planned. Um, I broke my leg, uh, kind of thing. So, and, and uh, yeah, that was it. Yeah. Well, you missed Paolo's antics then if you were on the, on the way to the hospital. I, mean, uh, I heard all about it. I heard all about it, yeah. <laughs> Was he one of the better players you played with? Everyone tells, yeah. tells you what an incredible professional he was. He changed the game in terms of looking after himself in that West Ham dressing room. Yeah, incredibly talented. I mean, incredibly gifted uh, player, Paolo Di Canio. Um, you know, everybody talks about that volley against Wimbledon. And um, I, think I, was, I think I was injured for that one as well. And I was like, I've, I've seen him do that a number of times. That wasn't a one-off. That wasn't something that he just came up with, you know, at the spur of the moment. I've not seen him try it during games, um, but i would seen him do it countless times in, in, in training. You know, I, you can't. Paolo, Paolo really was, really was a, a talent that, you know, again, Harry managed, Harry managed so, so brilliantly. Yeah. And of course, you, you went with Harry to Portsmouth. I wanted to ask you a goalkeeper's union question, because I've just seen a recent interview with Jamie Ashdown, who was your understudy at uh, Portsmouth. And I wanted to ask you about this Greek keeper, Kostas Chalkias. Yeah. Because I thought Good. goalkeepers stuck together, but he broke the mould a little bit. He did. He did. I, I, I still I, I speak about Kostas and I, I cannot stop laughing. So Kostas come along. Um, so this was after Harry got unceremoniously pushed out at, at, at Pompey himself and... Um, um, I can't remember, is it Dirk Zalek? I can't remember his name, came in and um, brought Kostas Chalkis over, which was, which was bizarre, you know, I, I, I didn't understand it. Um, but, you know, I was into my 30s at this point and, and thinking, well, that's the direction they're going to go, fair enough. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to still stay here and, and keep competing for, for your sports. And listen, it's, it's part of the territory, you know, you compete for the shit, you know, but you support each other. Um, you can't, you're only playing at the highest levels of football, you can't not expect or, or, or shake those challenges, you know. Um, so, but very early on, well, a couple of things. One, I realized he wasn't any good. Um, he he kind of come on the strength of, of Greece winning the Euros, even though he was the third string keeper in the squad and didn't play a single minute in, in, that, in that Euros for, for, for Greece. And the other thing that was just totally, well, in the end, became just amusing to, to, to me and, and became, in, in part, the highlight of my day. He did not say a word to me. Like, he would not say a word to the point where I, well, I, I noticed. So as soon as I came in in the mornings, I say that, I, I normally come in very early in the mornings. But from the time I, I knew he was in, I would go and search him out and say, Morning, Costas. And he would just totally blag me. And it was so funny. And then at the end of training, the day, I'm like, see you, Costas. See you tomorrow. Uh, and he would just come. He would not say a single word. It was, it was just so bizarre. I remember one time we trained at, uh, at Pratton Park. And at the end of the day, uh, at the end of the training session, there were three people left. Uh, Costas, myself, and Ricardo Fuller. And uh, Fuller, Ricardo, and I were, were just still getting ready. And Costas got up and said, okay, Ricardo, see you tomorrow. And just left. 
didn't say a word to me. So I go bolted on the judge room. See you tomorrow, Costas. I look forward to it. It was that. It was it was the most bizarre thing. And honestly, it was so funny. It was so funny. Oh God! But yeah, yeah, Costas was was a trip. It was it's, a trip. It's so strange because Jamie Ashdown said when he came in, he was that bad. He just assumed that he was going to be your number three. You know, with you as the number yeah. one, Jamie as the number two, and then all of a sudden he's thrown into the game on the Saturday. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. He, 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 was, he was a poor goalkeeper. I don't say that about anybody else I've, I've ever worked with. But he was a poor goalkeeper. Yeah. And it must have been a bit of a come down post Harry because she'd had that brilliant season with Paul Merson pulling the strings, a mm. great season with Teddy Sheringham pulling the strings. And all of a sudden, it, it, it's kind of gone, gone to pot there, really. But Teddy Sheringham was involved in your last ever game in English football which was an incredible occasion, one of the great FA Cup finals. Yeah. But of yeah. course, you were within seconds of winning it. So sorry to bring it yeah. up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, things kind of, as you, as you say, went off the rails at, at, at Portsmouth. I remember one of the directors coming to me um, late on in the season and saying, listen, we, we think we're going to move on from, from Alan Knight as, as a goalkeeper coach. So we're thinking about offering you play a coach position at, at Pompey and, and I, which I, I would have, you know, I, I, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm, I mean, at, at this point, I'm now 36 years old and, and this is perfect. But I remember calling my agent and saying, you know, don't look for anything else. I'm, I'm settled here. You know, my family were very settled down on the South Coast as well. And then all of a sudden, the day before the last game of the season, Alan Perrin, the, the Pompey manager at the, at the time, just came to me and said, um, listen, we not going to offer you anything. You're going to have to find find another club for the next season if you want to keep playing. Which, you know, totally threw me. You know, I, 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 as I mentioned, I, I didn't see that coming, didn't have that plan. Um, I know a lot of clubs were already, you know, kind of starting to plan their, their rosters for the, for the following season. So I really didn't know. I really didn't know what, what I was going to do. Um, and that summer kind of lived in that uncertainty. Had a couple of offers at clubs lower down, Low down in the league, but nothing really that, um, no, 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 nothing really that that excited me, you know. Or I, I was keen on, and then uh, I got a call from from uh, Pardew just saying, "Listen, I signed Roy Carroll as, as my number one. He will be my number one, but I want to go keep him with experience to push him. Um, would you come along?" And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, I'd come along. You know, going back to West Ham is, uh, you know, I thought so highly of of, of the club, and I felt I left." Um, I, I wasn't thrilled with how I left under uh, under, under Rhoda. Um So you know, I, 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 I look for that challenge. You know, pushing a young a young goalkeeper. So I was, I was happy for that. Uh, and then, but I would. So Roy was was the the number one, and I would play in the cup games. You know, to start with, it was the League Cup first part of the season, uh, and then he got injured early on in in. In the new year, and I, I played in the FA Cup games, and um, you know, but then Roy would come back in. Roy would come back in for, for the league games, and we went on this run. We, we just went, you know, we, we won the third round, won the fourth round, and then um, I started playing well. We started playing really well in the league, uh, and and, um, and and part you couldn't couldn't leave me out. You know, we were winning. You can't you can't change a winning team. Uh, and we just went on this run, kind of unexpectedly. And, and um, 
uh, I can't remember who, I can't remember the games building up to, to the final. I do remember we played Middlesbrough, I think it was at, uh, I think it was at, at, at Villa Park. Um, we beat them 1-0. Um, I, I just remember, I remember playing up against Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank, who had played, played against so many times. I, I love Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank. I, I mean, as, as a person, as uh, I, a little bit naughty as a player. Let, let me say that. I, 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 I thought Jimmy was a little naughty as a, as a player, but even though I never played with him, I got to know him off the field. Um, and I, I, I love Jimmy. I, I mean, to this day, I think Jimmy is, is one of football's really good guys. Um, he was but, a naughty shaker, sorry. So, I, 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 he, I remember um, he, 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 would always, he, he would always leave a foot in, as, 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 as the old cliche goes. I remember getting sent off for a challenge on, on, on Jimmy Floyd playing for West Ham uh, against Chelsea. We had three players sent off that game. Ian Wright got sent off in the first half. Then I got sent off early in the second half. And then Steve Lomas got sent off late, later on in that game. But I, I, I remember um, Jimmy, had, Jimmy, Jimmy had, had broken through, um, over-pushed one, and I came out, and I was nowhere close to Jimmy. I was nowhere close. And he just left the foot in, and, and, um, and, and I brought it back. He caught me. He went tumbling in, in the most you know, elaborate of fashions. Chelsea got a penalty. I got sent off, and I'm like, goodness me, this is Jimmy. This is, you know, you just see him, see how, see how he plays. And then I remember, I remember in that Middlesbrough game, I remember um, somebody tried to clip one long to Jimmy over the, over the, over the top of the, the centre halves. And I remember thinking, I'm going to get this right on the edge of the box. I'm standing right on the edge of the box. And as it's coming, um, I see Jimmy coming as well, and I, and. I then recognized this is going to fall just short. Um, so I'm going to have to come. But I, I see Jimmy, I see Jimmy sizing me up. I see Jimmy, I see, our eyes meet and I know what's coming. But at this point, I have absolutely no choice. It's, it's going to drop a yard outside the box. You know, I, I can't wait for this to come to me. Uh, I'm going to have to go out to head it. And, and that's what I do. And as I come out and I head the ball and I just wait for the contact, and Jimmy just flattens me with everything he has. I, I, I knew it was coming. That's, that's the only thing. I, I, I knew it was coming. I knew all I had to do was get my head to it. Um, I didn't have to head it anywhere specifically because I knew it was going to get flattened and the referee would have no choice but, but to blow. And that's exactly what happened. Um, and, and, you know, you take it, you get on with it. You know, we were one up. We were one up. So at that point, you know, making a scene out of it only benefits the team who's behind. You know, we want, have to keep our heads, have to keep control. And, and that's what we did, you know. So you, you take the foul, you, you know, you get on with it and then you manage to win the game. So uh, I also remember that from, that's my one big takeaway. I can't remember how, how we scored, but I remember getting flattened by, by Jimmy. Yeah. And then, of course, the final. What a final it was. The Stephen Gerrard yeah. final, sadly, for West Ham fans. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was yeah, it was a tough pill for, for us to swallow, you know. We we started so well, we were playing so well, and then um and then yeah, yeah, um, um I remember CC scoring in, in the first half, then Gerard scoring in the second, but we were three two up with minutes to go. And then I remember we had the ball, um it was Steve Gerard went down injured, um, just inside his own half. 
and it was Lionel Scaloni who was on loan um, from, I can't remember which Serie A club, but he was on loan and playing right back for us. But the ball fell to him just outside our box on the right-hand side. And he put the ball, he just put the ball out for a throw-in right there. And this is right at the end of the game. And I'm thinking, you know, experience tells you don't put it out there. Launch it up the field. Let them put it out for, for Steve Gerrard to get treatment if need be. We'll throw it back to them, but you don't want to put it out right there. And, and, but that's exactly what he did. And um, I, I remember a few of the West Ham players kind of going into an uproar about that, but then you have to kind of set it down um, because you have to deal with it. And then, you know, they take the throw, throw it to us, close, close it down so we can't get a good clearance. Kind of the exact can't remember exactly how it happened, but you know they kind of pin us into 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 our own half as as a result of us putting the ball out just there, um, and the clearance doesn't get far enough, and somehow the ball you know pops up to Gerard, and he just kind of picks himself up the floor. He's in acres of space because nobody had picked him up because he was just lying on the floor, and he just runs on and, and hits this thing as 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 sweetly as as, as you could imagine, and you know it's. Is in, you know, and and I think that was just um, that just took all the wind out, out of our sails, you know. It really was, it really was tough for us. And then um, I also remember, so then the game goes, game game goes to, to extra time, and um, we used all our subs, and and Marlon Harewood had had badly twisted his ankle um, at some point, but we can't take him off because we'd use all our subs, so might as well have him just stand on the field. And then, and then I remember we had one chance in extra time, and and uh, Pep Reina makes an incredible save, and and the rebound falls perfectly for Marlon Haywood six yards out. But bless him, you know, um, he couldn't move. You yeah. know, Marlon just just he just couldn't move, and and just kind of throws an injured ankle at it, and you know doesn't get anything on it, and then Reina makes he makes a follow up save. And, you know, um, any other player there, I say, um, and any, any other game, you know, it would have been in the back of the net, but it falls to a badly injured Harewood, and, and that kind of sealed our fate, you know, and the penalties almost was just kind of in keeping with with how injury time and the last two minutes went. Such fine margins in football, and that, that turned yes. out to be your last game in English football. You had a season at Dallas, but then... Retirement beckoned, and even though you had lots in your locker compared to the majority of footballers, I would say, in terms of your education, and but did you feel equipped for retirement? No. Um, I, I listen, I, I thought as I thought, I thought I'd done well. You know, as, as you mentioned, I had a, I had a degree behind me. You know, um, um, I'd invested fairly well, or so I thought. Um, um, but then you're never quite sure what to expect, and you're not sure, you know, um, what what your next career may hold. And, and though, you know, I found myself working with ESPN fairly fairly quickly after, you know, a, a couple of things just kind of worked against me. It's first of all, it, it's it's really tough saying goodbye to a game that. Um, had meant so much to you and so um, so much to me for for 15 years, you know. I'd I'd, I'd lived my boyhood dream for for 15 years, and all of a sudden, you know, you have to say goodbye, and, and it's a tough, it's a tough admission um, that you firstly have to make with yourself. 
and, and not very easy to accept. And, and I found that really hard. I found that I knew I was retiring and I knew I had to, I, I knew it was, it, it was time, but just kind of making the announcement formally, even just kind of telling friends and family that, yeah, I'm done now. Um, that was hard. That was, that was really hard for me. Um, and then, um, and then the economic collapse, uh, global economic collapse happened in, in 2008 and um, took a, a huge toll on, on, on everybody and, and all forms of, of investment over the next couple of years. And um, it, it decimated all I'd, I'd worked for during, during that 15 years. Um, so it, again, it was, it was tough trying to restructure and rebuild after that. Um, and, and that, you know, for, for me, I, I, as, as much as you kind of know that retirement is coming and it's not easy and you try to prepare for it, uh, I, I'm not sure, you know, how, how many people actually are when it, when it does, when you are faced with that reality. Yeah, so that was a real double whammy. I, I didn't even think about that because I know a lot of footballers who've been hit with financial issues after playing. But, of course, I'd forgotten that when you retired, it was that kind of financial crisis. So it was a case mm. where, were you thinking then, it's a case where I've got to get a second career? And what led you into the media? Well, I, I always knew I needed, I, I was going to have a second career. You know, as, as, as good as the money was, I I, I never earned the kind of money that would just, you know, see me lazily relaxing on a, on a beach somewhere in, somewhere in Tobago. You know, I, I knew I would have to work. You know, I just wasn't quite sure where that would be. Um, and then, in all honesty, the opportunity at the SBN just, just fell in my lap. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I retired at, at Dallas and, and, you know, that... It was just before the end of the season, so there was some some uh, press coverage, some media coverage of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I, I got a call from the press officer at, at Dallas, a guy by the name of Herman Spera, just saying a, a producer at ESPN um, wanted to know if I would come up and do a couple of shows with them. You know, they had this studio show at the time, it was called Press Pass. And um, my wife was also from trying to be, as I may have mentioned from the top, um, and we had planned to, to move back, um, probably. So we, we had our kids in school. So we thought, okay, we'd let the kids finish the, 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 the term or the semester in, in, in school, um, get to Christmas, probably have our last Christmas in, in the U.S., and then move back to Trinidad probably, you know, in January and try to get them into schools, et cetera. Um, so at least we were leaving in between, in, uh, you know, they weren't moving in the middle of, of, of a school term. Um, so I, I had nothing to do between that, you know, October and, and January, as, as I said. So they asked if I'd, if I'd come up, um, and I did. Um, you know, as I said, I didn't have anything else to do. They offered to fly me up from 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 Dallas to to Connecticut, where the studios were, and I did a couple of shows alongside um, Tommy Smith, Derek Ray, and uh, and Janusz Michalik, um, just talking about the game, and you know, enjoyed it. Thought it went well enough, but you know, didn't think a whole lot more of it. Um, and then got a call about two weeks later, just saying that they wanted to offer me a full-time position. It's not something I'd, I'd, I'd planned to do, not something I'd be, you know, prepared or did any kind of media training around. Um, just speaking to, to my boss, he's still my boss. Um, even now, some, you know, this is about 
13, just nearly 13 years later. Um, yeah, that was 2007, so now just about 13 years later. He said he'd just seen me do interviews before, realized I could, uh, you know, appreciated that I could string a sentence and a thought together and, and thought that'd be good to have on. I give my experiences and, uh, and, and there, there it was, you know, so it, it was as, as simple as that. So my wife and I had to change our plans to move. Uh, and of course, of course, the states are, are home since. But you've also tried your hand at different forms of media. I know you wrote that MLS blog, didn't you, for The Guardian. Did you, did you like the yeah. process of writing? Uh, and did you get any training in that regard? No, I, I didn't get any training in that regard. And, and that was part of, of a, a collaboration between ESPN and, and The Guardian. Um, David Beckham had just moved moved to, to, to the U.S. And um, initially it started off as a writer from, 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 from the U.K., from The Guardian, would just call and speak to me about, about MLS. And, and, and really it, it was, you know, David Beckham watch. Um, as, as opposed to as opposed to MLS, though it was presented or, or maybe packaged as, as as an MLS blog, um, and then eventually I, I didn't think that I was working very well. You know, I, I didn't feel had my voice, and uh, so I, I decided that I'd try to to write myself. You know, and, and this was again this was kind of my first uh, go at at, at at writing a, a journalistic piece. Anyway, you know. Um, so I did that for a few weeks and, and enjoyed it, you know, and, and as much as I enjoyed kind of putting, putting my thoughts into paper and, and, and seeing it take shape. The one thing I didn't really, I, I, I didn't appreciate is how long it took, you know, <laughs> in my, I, what was the average piece? 800 words, let's say. Hmm. And whereas that might seem, you know, kind of straightforward to, to, to write 800 words. Um, I, I didn't realize how long it really took to get thoughts down and put them in, in, in a succinct order and have it make sense. And, you know, it's a huge undertaking, you know, so hats off to, to the journalists and, and the writers out there, you know, and, and, um, and so I, I did that to, to the end of the season. I can't remember how long I did it for, but at the end of it, I was like, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not writing that anymore. You know, if they want to have a journalist speak to me again uh, and have the, then then fine. But I'm I can't. I'm I'm not doing that writing. Uh, it, it was just taking too taking up too much of my too much of my time. Um, uh, and so you know, um, and 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 I think that just kind of fizzled out. You know, yeah. and, and in terms of the guidance coverage. Well, it is a very different process, isn't it, to punditry? But what mm -hmm. we do have in common is the amount of preparation and research that you've got to do. How different is punditry now? You know, you've been in it sort of 13 years. What, uh, and how different is the preparation and the level of analysis that you have to go into? Well, I mean, on, on the one hand, thankfully, um, you know, we, we do this every day type of thing. So, you know, the, it, it's, um, so the, the research we do, you know, and, and typically because here at, at the ASPNFC, we, we cover usually the typically top five European leagues. And in those top five leagues, the top clubs, um, you know, we, we unashamedly focus very heavily on them. Uh, and once you do that day in, day out, you know, your research is just kind of there. And, and it's part of what you do every day. Um, but every so often, you know, you're finding yourself having to discuss, you know, um, 
what, what, what comes to mind. Uh, so, for instance, let's say Sheffield United and, and how well they did last season. And how little we knew of Sheffield United as a newly promoted team. And generally, we, we don't focus on, on, on Sheffield United. Or, you know, for argument's sake, uh, Shakhtar Donetsk beating Real Madrid in the Champions League. So, you know, now all of a sudden we have to figure out who, well, not just figure out, but who are Shakhtar, even though they compete in the Champions League. And our coverage of them is usually, whenever, you know, it depends on what group they're drawn in and who they're drawn against. And, and those games are, are, are our focus, you know. So if they aren't playing against uh, Real or Barca or Bayern or, you know, Man City or Manchester United, we, we don't see an awful lot of them, you know. Um, so that then, you know, you now have to take on, you know, you know, you now find yourself trying to research a lot about them, but it, it will never be as thorough as, you know, kind of that all-immersing nature of, you know, how we cover Chelsea or Spurs or any of the top teams in, in any, of the, any of the Premier League. Um, but, you know, it's fun. You know, I, we, we, again, we have, a, we have a good dressing room, so to speak. And, um, you know, it's, it's, we all get on really well. And we're able to kind of wind each other up and, and have that banter without, without anybody, you know, um, taking anything personally. Mm. And, you know, it, it, it's, we enjoy what we do, you know, and, and it's, it's I've really enjoyed, really enjoyed the experience. Yeah. And again, you've expanded that. You've gone more journalistic in many ways because I've seen you interviewing people, which is very different than being or just being a pundit. So mm. did you enjoy the process of that and the preparation and, and what was it like interviewing people that you previously criticised? Obviously, Jose Mourinho springs to mind. Yeah, well, that, you know, um, to be honest, I just kind of go into it, uh, hoping they, they don't know some of, some, um, some, some of, of what I've said of, uh, about them before. And, and being in the States, it's, it's probably easy to, to, you know, for that to, 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 to go missing. But, you know, I, I think, Listen, I, one of the things we try to do on, on our show is have strong opinions, you know, rightly or wrongly. One, one of the things that kind of irks me as, as a viewer of, you know, at other programs and without calling names or pointing fingers is, you know, the kind of middle of the road kind of mm -hmm. opinions where you don't want to upset anybody, you know, and, um, you know, you, you hear team, you know, or you hear people talk about, or let, let, let's say you're talking about who's going to win the league. And, you know, the last thing I, I want to hear is somebody give me a, a reason why anybody in the Premier League could win it. You know, well, if they go on a good run and if, you know, some just fit. No, you know, just come out and say who right now, who you think is going to win it. And if you get it wrong, say, well, you know, I got it wrong. You know, but, but have opinions. And, and I think that just kind of uh, allows us to speak. So I have, the, so I, I, I have strong opinions. And I'm, 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 I'm also more than willing to say, and, and you know, when I get it wrong and, and say that. And I, I, I think part of, a part of that process of, of understanding um, a team, a manager, my criticisms around them, why they do things that I'm critical of, is, is getting to know them and, and their own philosophies around the game. You know, my philosophies will be totally different from, from anybody else's. Um, you know, I, I point to the fact that I grew up in Trinidad and Tobago. I'm from a small country, and my understandings and philosophies and uh, are shaped by 
you know, my dreams around the game. I, I never thought that I'd ever play professional. And, um, you know, so it, 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 it's unique. So I want to understand their philosophies, what shaped them, whether they played the game and have now become managers, as Frank Lampard is doing now, or they didn't, and have become hugely successful managers, as Jose Mourinho or Sir Alex Ferguson, you know, wasn't a huge success as a player, but, you know, became one of the, if not the greatest football manager of all time. And, and so just trying to understand those different dynamics about mm -hmm. who they are and what, what, what makes them tick, what makes them, what makes them managers, how they've dealt with both successes and failures. And then that's kind of what I'm trying to, trying to get at. I'm also fully aware of uh, the fact that I'm not really an interviewer, but you know, I'm, I'm just asking as a fan. So sometimes it, it kind of comes across like that. It may not have the structure, the journalistic structure that, that it should, but I'm just asking questions as, as, as a fan, again, given my kind of unique perspective on it. No, I think that's endearing, isn't it? And football's a rich tapestry of experiences and opinions. And are you also looking at more hard-hitting issues? Does that really float your boat? Because obviously you did the show, show the races and the red card series. How important was that for you to get involved on a on the kind of production and presenting of that? That that was important for me, more on a personal perspective. Hmm. Um, the 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 murder of George Floyd and uh, everything that was happening around that time, Ahmad Aubrey, Brianna Taylor. Um, it, it, was, um, it, it was a tough time for me personally. You know, it, it was a, a really heavy time for, for me personally, where my wife and I had to sit our kids down and have conversations with our son, at the time he was only 12 years old, about what it means to be black in this country and black and male. And, living uh, in a country, in a, in a city as we do, and um, how, how hard that can be. And part of, of my coping, I, you know, I've been involved with, I'm wearing this t-shirt now, I'll show you some red card from its founding, dating back to, to my Newcastle days. I'm really founding, founding patrons, founding members, and, and still serve as honorary president. Um, but even with my experience of, of working in, in anti-racism and education around racism for, for you know, a quarter of a century, it, it still was a very heavy time for me. And part of the coping mechanism was speaking to other people about it, about their own experiences, about how they're coping, um, about maybe how they, they see the future um, uh, and, and what we can do to address, address the now and, and and, and shape what, what, what is to come. Um, and, and that was, you know, that was, as I said, as, as good as it was for me, you know, I think it was also important for, for ESPN to have a presence in, in, in that space. You know, as, as much as we talk about the game and have fun around the game, uh, part of my, my belief is also that the game is about so much more than winning and losing. Um, and again, this kind of comes back to my own uh, upbringing so, so to speak, in, 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 in football. The game is, is, is about so much more than three points. The game is about so much more than, than uh, who's won the title at the end of the season. And, and, and this is, a, I think, is one of the driving, one of the biggest differences between me and, and you know, for instance, a fan of, of, of a particular, particular club. 
You know, for me, the game is, is about providing opportunity. The game provided opportunity for me as, as a young man. Otherwise, there's no way I, I could, could have gone to university without, without football. Um, and as much as I then went on to play professional, that's what the game meant to me growing up, providing opportunity. I feel, um, and then given my own experiences in football uh, and my work show recently red card, the game can, can be such a unifying force. Where else can a young man from Trinidad and Tobago sit in a room and be five feet away from somebody from Newcastle, somebody, I'll use my, my experience at Newcastle as an experience, somebody from Newcastle, somebody from Sunderland who's playing for Newcastle, somebody from London, be five feet away from Philippe Albert from Belgium, Faustino Aspria from Colombia, Nikos Dabizas from, from Greece, Timur Kutzbayer from, from Georgia, and sharing those experiences, sharing in each other's lived experiences, get to know Georgia as, as intimately as, as I possibly could, and, and recognize that we have so much more in common than, than divides us. Um, where else can a young man from Trinidad and Tobago take a fee with that, with, with players from all four corners of the earth, and, and know that on a good day, when I'm having a good day, it's my job to uplift this team, to, to be at, at my best and, and you know, propel this team to, to victory. When I'm not having a good day, I know I can rely on all of these guys from every corner of, uh, of, of the planet to support me and get me, you know, and, and keep me out of, out of real trouble. And if things don't go well on the day and, and we lose, we take the training ground on Monday and we work together to fix it. And when things go right, we celebrate together. Those are the lessons for me that speak to what football is all about. Um, and, and that is, is, you know, ultimately kind of how my, my own philosophies around the game are, are, are shaped. And, and, you know, I make no apology for that. I, I make no apology and don't, and, and don't, will never just kind of accept that, you know, the game is about winning. It's about three points. It's about who's, who's lifting the title. Uh, if you're a fan, I accept that's the most important thing to you. But for me, overarching, it's, that's, what, that's what it's about. And the one thing you can say about being a, a Newcastle and a West Ham fan, particularly in today's football, is that's, that's neutral. That's kind, of, that's kind of neutral. You know, we, we live in hope, but we don't really expect. So it allows me to be as neutral as, 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 as anybody else, uh, as anybody can expect. I totally agree with you. It's got to have a social, political and cultural influence. The game is that big, isn't it? But mm. can you believe that 25 years ago, when you first got involved with show, the race, show races and the red card, after that incident, I believe, at a petrol station in Newcastle, mm -hmm. which it'd be great if you, if you regale, you know, told us it, but can you believe that 25 years on from that, you're going on a BLM march in Boston? still with these issues at the forefront a quarter of a century on? Um, no. And, and that was pretty hard for me to accept, particularly early on. And part of my coping was that Black Lives Matter march. But just to tell the full story, so just after I joined Newcastle, um, I was uh, at, a, at a petrol station just outside St. James's Park, right, to, right in the middle of town. 
and three white youths come walking down the hill outside St. James's Park and from about 50 yards away start shouting the most vile racist abuse at me. As they get closer, you know, 15 feet away, a little bit more, um, one of them recognizes who I was and they start chanting my name and wanted to come over for autograph. But that kind of speaks, spoke to the duality of who I was, of my existence. From 50 yards away, I was a black man worthy only of the greatest of disrespects, of the most vile racist abuse. From 50 feet away, I was worthy of having my name, you know, sung loudly and wanted to come up for autographs. And it spoke to our work and responsibility to our community. Uh, I actually did a talk. So I, the, first, the first talk that we did, the first school visit that we did, was sure recently red card. I got John Beresford to come to come along with me. And John and I were actually uh, on a call uh, a few weeks ago and we were speaking about it. John, John got an MBE for, for his um, continued work in anti-racism work. Uh, and, and John is saying, listen, I, I get all these awards and I'm, I, I don't know what to make of it. You know, here I am receiving an MBE from the Queen and I don't know what to make of it. You know, I'm like, are you sure me? Am I in the right place? And, and, and as I said to him, I think that kind of spoke to how it all started. You know, it's imposter syndrome. Because at the time we started started we started showing red card. Um, out of, out of uh, I feel, a responsibility to, to community. We were football players in the Northeast, in Newcastle. And we um, have a responsibility to that community where we ply our trades. And that's where... And we decided, you know, anti-racism work was, you know, was how we were going to pay that responsibility forward to, to, to our community. So none of us at the time, you know, expected that some 25 years later, we'd be talking about, um, you know, Britain's largest anti-racism anti educational charity or the, the kind of awards and accolades that have come on, along the 25 years and, and the goodwill that continues to go on with. With, 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 with the organization. Um, so no, we, 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 didn't think, we didn't think about that at all. And, but then, you know, to, to what happened earlier this year, um, I, again, I remember having a, a Zoom talk uh, very early in March and, and saying that I felt a certain sense of failure in that started uh, with show recently read card as a promise to, to my kids to deliver to them a world I, I think we all want to recognize, that I, I think they're worthy of, of living in, of, of growing up in. And then all of a sudden it hit you in 2020 that I failed in, in, in that promise. And Leroy Rossinia, who's a, a senior vice president of Assurance and the Red Card, he, he quickly interjected and said, Jack, I don't, don't see it as, as a failure. See, this is a really race. You're, you're running, let's call it the third leg of a relay. And our responsibility here is to hand off the baton to the next generation in a position and in a way that empowers them to really finish this race, to deliver on, on the promises that you think you made. And it's now our responsibility to equip them, to empower them, to give them the confidence to go on and really finish the job and, and, um, and trust that, that they will. 
And my daughter, and in recognizing that fact, my eldest daughter, um, who was also born in Newcastle, um, she was going on a Black Lives Matter march in, in Boston, and my wife and I spoke about it. This is when the pandemic really just started taking hold in, in the US, and we were as concerned and, and scared as, as anyone, but we felt we, we needed to, and I'm so glad we did. So we got our gloves and our masks and our hand sanitizer, and we went into town, and we just joined the march. You know, we were just present. Um, and I think that was also empowering for me, empowering for us, that we were there. Um, and in seeing the youth and seeing the diversity of, of, of the people there, people who are a part of that, that march, spoke to exactly what Leroy was saying, that, you know, we've run the third leg and we have to trust in the young people to, to bring this home um, because they can given the world that they now live in, that they recognize, and how they're able to, to now use the tools at their disposal, tools both in the experiences that we have as, as adults, as parents, as the previous generation, and equip them with, and tools that they know better than we ever will in terms of uh, social media and, and how to use, how to use um, the, those, those tools of, 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 of today. Um, they're the ones who, who bring this home. And, and, and that, that for me as well was, was an incredibly uplifting experience and one that I'm, I'm, I'm really happy my wife and I decided, decided to take. Now, I'm a, an eternal optimist as well, Shakra. I just like to think that we've had a blip and we've gone backwards because of this outbreak of populist politics, if you like, with the, mm -hmm. over on your side of the pond and certainly on our side of the pond. And I would like to think that now changes are happening at the top level over there the you know the, the 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 blip that we've had in the progress will continue on that upward trajectory now but mm. what do you think about the current situation and the criticism that's been with taking the knee do you think that should continue obviously les ferdinand one of your former teammates thinks it's now become a little bit token mm. I think it should continue. And Les and I spoke about this. I interviewed Les as part of the Shuriz Red Card series with the ESPN. And I totally understand what Les is saying. And, and, um, but let, let me say this, especially given the work that we do with kids, I think taking the knee is a good conversation starter. Yeah. Whether it's for grown-ups, you know, having started that conversation with the people they sit, in the next cubicle along from them at work or sit next to them on the bus or the train going, going to work. I think taking the knee, the patches on the arms um, allows kids to ask those questions of those parents, mom or dad, at, at the dinner table. Why, why are the players from the team we support taking a knee? What's that pattern on the arms? I think it, 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 it allows kids to ask those questions. And we certainly believe and, have, and, and say within Children Red Card that if kids are old enough to ask the questions, they are old enough to hear the answers. So I, I, think, I think it should continue in that regard. I think the challenge that, um, that we continue to face and, and I'm not sure how many uh, address effectively enough and 
is getting to Les's point, is how many hide behind taking the knee or the Black Lives Matter uh, patches on the arms. How Greg Clark can say as FA chairman, yep, we support taking the knee. We do, you know, we will do it in the leagues. We'll do it with the England national team. We'll have all sorts of, 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 of these show of, of these displays of, of unity of support, but then go in a private, you know, Zoom meeting and use language that is that dates back to my father's own harassment, as, as we spoke about uh, at the top of, of, of this discussion. That is a challenge. Too many are willing to hide behind those, those initiatives and those efforts. What we need to be doing in collaboration with Taking the Knee, in collaboration with, with the Black Lives Matter patches on the arms, is developing the pipelines to better support um, and encourage Black and minority ethnic coaches to have them on the sidelines, to better diversify uh, our boardrooms, and in particular, at the highest levels of, of games, with, within FAs, within league boards, within those management committees. That is where significant work needs to continue to happen. Well, that was going to be my sort of final question, really. You know, is that where you need to look in terms of real change to be implemented at that administrative level and the fact that the Greg Clarks of this world, that generation, if you like, are moving on, does that mm -hmm. fill you with hope? Listen, I, I, I am the eternal, well, see your phrase, I'm eternal optimist. My glass is always, always half full. Um, and I, I, my experiences in football, though, at times, I can be critical of, of so much that I've seen, both at the national and domestic level, at, at professional and, and, and uh, playing for my own national team, to my involvement with, with, with FIFA. And, and um, there are incredible people doing incredible work behind the scenes. And they have to be, they have to be applauded. They have to be championed. It's, it's, it, be, it has become... And I, I understand it's very easy to look heads of those organizations, whether we're talking Sepp Blatter or Gianni Infantino, who I'm very critical of, to going back to Jack Warner or Greg Clark of, of today, uh, and see the negative sides of, of some of the um, higher positions within our football and, and feel that that overshadows uh, the good people within those same organizations. I feel that our responsibilities as fans, because as fans, we are stakeholders in this game. We have to continue to shout from our own purchase, our own platforms about the change that we want to see in our game. We don't want to see um, people like Greg Clark who are willing to, to use that kind of language um, in, in private meetings. We don't want to see Seth Blatter and, uh, and uh, Jack Warner, and as I, as I said before, I am very critical of, and continue to be very critical of, of, of Gianni and Pantino and, and a lot of what's happening within FIFA. But we, we um, but we, and we want to see those boardrooms changed. We want to see 
a, a lot of the people behind who have done this good work behind the scenes um, rewarded for that work and, and elevated. We want to see those those boardrooms um, look as diverse, feel as diverse as as our high streets do. And only then, only when those boardrooms are more representative, are more reflective of our high streets, will I think we will see the game deliver on the fullest of its promises. What a great way to end, Shaka. A message of hope. We will get there. But thank you very much indeed. I really appreciate your time. It's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. No problem. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Good speaking with you, Richard. The Phoenix Sports and Media Group provide honest and trustworthy professional advice and business solutions to the sports and media industry. For more information, visit www.psm-group.co.uk.